Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with Philippa Hughes, the founder of Curiosity Connects Us, an organization that connects people who would not typically associate with each other, specifically Democrats and Republicans. Philippa got the idea after the 2016 election didn't turn out the way she had hoped. So she came up with an idea to learn why. She decided to host a dinner at her home in Washington, D.C., where she invited liberals and conservatives. Her mission was to create a space where both sides of the aisle could meet in a setting conducive to meaningful conversation. Since that first dinner, Philippa has hosted many similar dinners and says that the project is about sitting across from one another and having a nuanced conversation. Okay, time to give the Crude Company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Scott Liska, and Carly Mortensen. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. Your money helps keep this podcast alive. My mission is to reach $4,000 a month. I've done the math, and with that amount, I'll be able to make this a full-time job. That amount includes my living expenses as well as podcast production expenses. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine and pick the subscription tier that works for you. A few notes here. I mistakenly refer to the concept of Washington Listen as Washington Talk at a point in the conversation. The Washington Listen is the concept that you're not really listening to a conversation, but instead just waiting for your turn to talk. I also forgot George Lakoff's title. Lakoff is an author and a professor of linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley. Also, this conversation came about by way of a LinkedIn message. Jeff Salzgaber with New American Economy, a bipartisan immigration advocacy and reform organization, messaged me about a tour making a stop in Anchorage called Looking for America, of which Philippa's organization, Curiosity Connects Us, is part of. The goal of the tour is to answer a fundamental question. What does it mean to be American? My guest today, Philippa Hughes, says that it's impossible to universally answer that question because everyone's American experience is unique. Which is why, throughout our conversation, she emphasizes the importance of face-to-face interaction and civil discourse. Because, she says when we listen to each other, we learn more. So here she is, Philippa Hughes. (laughs) This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up! Crude Conversations Listen more, then you talk. Go to work! Welcome to the show, Philippa. Thank you. I'm excited. <laughs> this one's going to be a little different just because I was I was contacted through LinkedIn oh, by okay. Jeff. Uh-huh. And how do you pronounce his last name? I don't know because I've never met him. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> the mysterious <laughs> Jeff. Yeah. He seems like a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, um, so I was under the impression that he was going to be here. Okay. And so I started kind of like researching him. And then he hit me back with an email and told me that I was going to be meeting with you. And I was like, oh, great. You know, and then did some research and became really excited to talk to you. Yeah. So okay. this uh, this podcast is a little different in that the guest yourself yeah. um, isn't Alaskan, but you are in Alaska. Uh-huh. So maybe to start off, why are you in Anchorage? I'm in Alaska because I am working on a series called Looking for America, and we're going to six cities across the country in which I'm curating an art show in each place in which local artists are asked to respond to the question, what does it mean to be American in your community? And then I organize a dinner for 50 people across the political spectrum to talk to each other. First, they look at the art. Um, and think about 
you know, what the art is saying, meet the artist, and then we sit down for dinner, break bread, and just talk to each other. It's like kind of a novel idea, <laughs> in, you know, in our political climate. And that's kind of, um, you talk about that in your TED Talk. Yeah. How you started bringing all these different people from different sides of the aisle together so you could have like this civil conversation. How'd you come up with that idea? Well, uh, I guess I should back up. Um, so I live in Washington, D.C. Um, I've lived there for a while, and but I've been working in the arts for like 10, 12 years. And so that's sort of my wheelhouse is art stuff. I, I'm not an, I, I'm, I'm sort of an artist, I guess. I've become an artist. But anyway, so after the 2016 election, um, I, you know, was a little flustered, like it didn't turn out the way I thought it was. Well, it didn't turn out the way most America thought it was going to turn out. <laughs> and so I was really curious because I was like, why? How did that happen? I mean, in the run up to the election, I think we all kind of knew that it was not your normal kind of election. And so I had been reading all these books like Hillbilly Elegy and Gilded Rage and, you know, trying to understand America and then the election happened. I was like, I don't understand a thing, apparently. Like, <laughs> I'm, that was weird. And so I, uh, a couple days later, at, like that Thursday or Friday, I posted on Facebook an invitation. I was like, if you voted for Donald Trump, I really want to talk to you and I will make you dinner. So come over. And of course, nobody responded. And but a, a couple liberally friends were like, I'll, I'll come to that dinner. And I was like, well, you can't come to the dinner unless you bring a conservative person. Like, I, I don't, because, you know, D.C., uh, I live in D.C., and it's 96% Democrat. Okay. So, like, it's pretty hard to find uh, conservatives there. And so I made my friends look for me, basically. And so eventually, like, it was like a friend of a friend of a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and because, I, I mean, besides the fact that, you know, D.C. is just very democratic, it's also, it shows how tribal we are. You know, like, I basically only hang out with people like myself. And, but that's what everybody does. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so eventually I found one. <laughs> and then once... She agreed to come to dinner. I was like, well, do you know anybody, you know, who also voted like you? And she, of course she did, because people hang out with other people like themselves. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's how that first dinner happened. It was six of us, um, three of them and three of us. And the second people walked in the door, we just started arguing. And I'm fun. You know, it was fun, actually. But we just like went at it. And so... I was like, well, that was amazing and interesting. So I just kept doing it over and over. So it was constructive, the the arguing, or was it like it was malicious? No, oh, it was not malicious. Okay. It was not malicious. Everybody like was there to figure things out. Um, it was great. But I would say it was like kind of cathartic, but it was definitely not malicious. Okay. In fact, there's a guy from that dinner who's like, we're still buddies. You know, we're not like best friends, but he's come to more dinners. Uh, he's awesome. We like everyone. He, he's always sending me emails, uh, like forwarding things to me, like, what do you think about this? You know? <laughs> and so we just talk. I mean, we disagree. But mm -hmm. We really will go back and forth. It's it's fun. Um, but it was also hard. It was really hard. And so I just kept doing it over and over in my house. And um, I would cook like, well, I, for the first couple of ones, I would cook red and blue foods um, just to be cute, I guess. But it's very hard to find blue foods to cook. <laughs> Why red and blue? Red, like conservative, blue, liberal. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm just okay. just trying to be funny. I guess uh, I'm dense in the morning. <laughs> okay. Um, and in fact, I started calling it blueberries and cherries just again, like, you want to come to my blueberries and cherries dinner? And did they notice this? Oh, Yeah. Okay. Eventually, people would figure it out, and then it would like be like a little chuckle because, like, I wasn't trying to do a project. I just wanted people to come over for dinner. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and I wanted it to be fun, so I tried to make it fun. Um, so anyway, okay, so I kept doing it over and over, and I'm not like trained in facilitation or anything. I just did it, and so I started researching, like, how can I make these dinners actually productive and meaningful in some way, other than you know just sitting around. Shooting the sh shooting the breeze. Oh, you can cuss. Uh, oh, oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is uncensored. <laughs> um, and so I just started experimenting with different things, um, and then started experimenting with maybe how art could be part of the conversation because that's you know the world I live in. Mm -hmm. So you know, again, just experimenting, and then eventually last fall I organized uh, a little art show in DC called A Good American. 
And seven DC-based artists responded to what it meant means to be a good American. Mm-hmm. And then I organized a dinner for 50 people in the museum across the political spectrum. So actually, that's another thing is like it started to evolve into like at first it was just like Trump supporter and Trump hater, but evolved into just across the political spectrum because I started to realize like it's just much more complicated, right, than mm-hmm. us against them and black and white. Like, there's so many nuances across the, that spectrum. And it just was so interesting. Like, I, I just, I, I guess I just, it just all boils down to just this curiosity about, not just about who you are politically, but who you are across the country. Like, I just think we're so out of touch with each other, both ways. Was there a moment where you saw something or heard something and you thought, Okay, this is working. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's so many moments like that, actually. I, I, I'm trying to think of like one really good illustrative moment. This one, okay. At one of the dinners, um, this one woman said, Trump is a racist. And another woman said, she just called me racist. And then everybody around the table is like, no, she said Trump is a racist. She definitely did not call you a racist. And we argued about that point for a long time. And she still, I don't know if she just didn't want to admit that she was wrong and misheard, you know, or, but eventually we just had to stop talking about it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what happened. So I can't say that it was like a success because we real, you know, we made her realize that, you know, what I thought was cool about it is that. The first reaction was to not talk about it, to avoid, because we're naturally, humans naturally avoid confrontation. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what we're doing in our political discourse is we don't talk about stuff. You know, like that whole thing where like, I don't want to go home for Thanksgiving because I don't want to have to talk to my relatives. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, actually, you should like talk about that stuff and get into it because there's really no way to work those issues out. Unless we actually just sit there and talk about it. You know, I wonder, because that's the best case scenario, right? Where you go to the Thanksgiving dinner and everyone is having a civil conversation. But what about the family that just says incendiary things to each other, you know? know. And they are at each other's necks constantly, whether it's Democrat or Republican. Yeah, that's right. Um, Okay, that is an interesting question, too. I don't... This is so, and of course, I am no expert. I am just telling you my anecdotal experience. For sure, yeah. But okay, my mom is a Trump supporter. Uh, In fact, basically, my immediate family mom, stepdad, brother. So, you know, we just go at it and they're always poking at me. They're always like trying to make me like angry. (laughs) What kind of stuff do they say? Um, They'll, uh, uh, a lot of. Oh, okay. So here's another thing. Uh, my mom is an immigrant, um, and, and and many of our family actually came through a refugee program. Uh, our family is Vietnamese. Okay. Uh, my mother's side of the family, and so she is like a build the wall, like no more immigrants. Basically, shut it down. Shut down immigration. Okay. And even though she's an immigrant, even though she's an immigrant. And remember a couple years ago, we were going to let in 10,000 Syrian refugees. And that was like a big thing. Like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, she was like, we shouldn't let any of those people in here. <laughs> and you talked to her about this? How does she? Yeah. So, in, so a couple years ago, I okay. couldn't even talk about it, too, you know. And I feel like in a way, I, I, was try- I was organizing dinners with strangers so that I could practice talking to my own mother. So I just <laughs> couldn't talk to her. And then uh, I was visiting her and my stepdad this summer, and they did it to me again. Like, they're always, like, asking, you know, they'll, they'll just be like, well, what do you think about this? And then, no, like, I'll, we had the most amazing conversation. It was literally the first time we actually talked without, like, me getting, you know, exploding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think the reason that it worked is because I was trying to implement this thing that I've been practicing with dinners with strangers, just being curious and asking, well, why do you think that? What, how do you think, you know, how do you think that would work? Asking questions based on curiosity Mm -hmm. rather than trying to be right, um, rather than trying to persuade anybody. This sounds so hokey, but it worked. (laughs) Well, I think it comes down to... uh... 
the difference between being reactionary yes. and then being a thoughtful thinker. Exactly. And also saying, hey, there's a reason why people think this way. I mean, sometimes I know that my mom and stepdad will ask me questions just to provoke me because, mm -hmm. you know, family dynamic. Yeah. But also, there's a reason from their own life experience, from their, like, they have reasons to think this way. Mm -hmm. And rather than just saying they're stupid for thinking this way, like, let's find out. It was so, like, after I, like, changed my way of thinking, I was like, it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think that reverting back to just thinking people are stupid is the easy way out. I think it's lazy. Yeah. I think it's so lazy to do that. And in fact, when, and I have plenty of liberally friends who just shout on Facebook all the time about how stupid everybody is that doesn't think like that. And I'm like, that is just dumb. Like, mm -hmm. you're wasting your, you're wasting my time <laughs> even just making me listen to that. Mm -hmm. Like, what, what are you, you're not accomplishing a thing. And it, it really, that really makes me mad It's when it happens on both sides. So I <laughs> I mentioned I watched your 2017 TED Talk, yeah. Seeing Your Way to Civil Discourse. And pretty early on, you mentioned a neighborhood undergoing gentrification. Mm -hmm. You bring up how there were complaints that new people to the neighborhood weren't acknowledging the people who had lived in their neighborhood for generations. How does the gentrification affect the people who have lived there for generations? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So that project that I talked about was And called, by the way, sorry for switching gears on you there. <laughs> no, no, but it's related. Okay. Because that project happened. Okay. I had been working on that project all during 2016. So the campaign was happening around that same time. Um, it was called Sea Change. And we actually had to install the project. Like it came, it, it kicked off three days after the election. So everything was kind of happening in parallel, mm -hmm. like this project that I was working on in a neighborhood in which people weren't communicating. Um, they were like, it was. there was like this old versus new, black versus white. Um, it was really interesting. And so learning about the way people related on a very micro level, just in this small neighborhood, like was part of my under began my understanding of how important it is to actually look at each other and see each other as human beings and that's what the the dinner project is about it's about not shouting at each other over social media and not just reading a book about or an article about somebody it's about sitting across from them and asking them questions and having a nuanced conversation face to face and even if you don't talk about politics there is actual science that says that when you actually look people in the eye, they become more human to you. Mm -hmm. And that's all this is about. It's all related. It's all about seeing each other as human beings. And that's what I'm trying to create in these dinners. It's not about the politics at all, ultimately. Have you seen any of these people that you've invited on either side of the political spectrum have like like a, a moment of understanding, you know, when they're taught a Democrat talking to a Republican mm -hmm. or vice versa, and they're like, oh, okay, I, I kind of get it now. Like, mm -hmm. I get that this is a person. Maybe I don't believe in their political views, but they're loosening up. Yeah, it happens all the time, to be honest. Um, so with the current iteration of the project, we ask people to bring an object or a story, a recipe, a song, something that um, relates to your sort of American experience about being an American. And then you just tell the story. At the end of every dinner, people are like, oh my gosh, like I just was that, I, I, I got to know this person. In fact, okay, so last, so the dinner in Anchorage was last night. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that this one person said to me after it was, wow, I've known this person like 20 years and I never knew this thing about them. And it's so amazing. Like, it wasn't even about the politics. And I think I keep going back to that. And I, and I find it interesting that every time I tell people that I do this, I'm doing this project, they want to know, they kind of want to know, basically, did you change anybody's mind? Or did anybody move? And I, I actually don't focus on that that much. Because it's not about persuasion. It's not about moving people in their opinions. Mm -hmm. It's literally just about saying, I got to know this person better. And like everybody says that at the end, I got to know somebody better. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the huge success of this project. 
not whether I understood their views on immigration better. Maybe that will happen as, you know, as a side benefit, but that's not the goal at all. I think that those things take time. I oh, think that yes. most people are stubborn and they they uh, they stay that way. I mean, I won't even – stubborn sounds like a mean thing. You're not mean, but like it's like a negative – no, like that's just human nature. Okay. And in fact, I'm, I'm glad you reminded me of that because, you know, I've been doing this now almost three years, like two and a half years since the election. And it's taken me this long to even be able – it took me until this summer, two years later, to have that conversation I described to you with my mom and stepdad mm-hmm. because – like I, <laughs> that's the first time I've been able to have a political conversation with them without like storming out of the room like a fifteen-year-old, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, so yes, it takes time. Like I don't think that we're going to change our political discourse in one dinner. Like it's we have to keep doing this over mm-hmm. and over. It, it's really hard, and you have to practice. And so that's a real challenge. Like how do we give people more opportunities to practice? Like, it's hard and people are busy. And, you know, so that is a a big challenge. I wonder if these people are going to the dinner and then once they go out, you know, back into the world, if they are practicing those techniques or maybe they're more open to talking to other people. That that is the goal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So right now we are... It's just in the midst of figuring, you know, doing the initial phase of this project. So that is a goal is to how do we extend it? Um, And we've got, we've definitely have some ideas. Um, So far, we've been to Detroit, Salt Lake City, now Anchorage. Next up is Sioux City, Iowa, El Paso, and then Northwest Arkansas. So we're, you know, these are very different places. So trying to like learn from each place. How do we take it up to the next level um, to make sure that not not only expand to as far and wide as possible, but to figure out ways to encourage people to keep doing it? Have you found anything else similar? Is there similarities between Anchorage, uh, Salt Lake City, and Detroit? Mm-hmm. I mean, the similarities are at a very human level. Okay, here's another question people always ask me, like, how do you get the Trumps or how do you get the conservatives to come? And I'm like, why would you think that people wouldn't want to talk to each other? I think the sim- one of the similarities is that people want to do this across the country. Um, you know, we hear about this polarization, and there's no doubt that there is very loud polarization happening on the extreme ends on both sides. Mm-hmm. But most of us in this country are exhausted by that. And we want to just talk to each other and figure out a way forward. And, you know, okay, so that's why I was earlier, I was like, I think I'm an artist, but I'm not really sure. I've worked with <laughs> artists a lot. Yeah. But um, there's this artist um, from like the 70s. His name is Joseph Boyce. And he called himself a social sculptor. And so I've kind of stolen that. Um, I'm calling myself a social sculptor. Um, it's a person who creates space for social interaction. And the space is only one part of the art piece. The completion of the art piece is people in the space actually talking and forming relationships with each other. Kind of just sounds like a bar. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> yes. I want to... Okay, last night we were at Darwin's Theory. Okay. And the that Sweet Caroline song came yeah. on, that Neil Diamond song, and everybody in the bar was like singing the song and we were all like high-fiving at each other and <laughs> it was amazing and my colleague and I literally turned to each other and said we should just like have these things in bars from now on mm-hmm. and just play that song and everybody sings and like drinks beer together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alcohol is a great socializer. It was amazing. It was literally what we've been trying to do, like, but happened very spontaneously. And in fact, I mean, I think that's part of the problem with like trying to do these dinners is that if it feels so organized, like I hate, I hate rules. Like, you know, like you're at, you're at a thing and people are like, okay, here are the rules that we're going to follow. Okay. Does I, I get why one does that, mm-hmm. but it, that doesn't seem very fun to me to have rules, you know? But anyway, I don't know. I, I'm kind of like going all over the place because I'm I'm struggling with how to create, how to sculpt social spaces that feel fun and natural and don't feel stilted and you know don't feel too structured. Mm-hmm. But 
I don't know. It, it's a challenge, but also it's like at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter. It's just as long as people talk to each other, whatever the circumstance, I think is an achievement unto itself. You know what I mean? It sounds like what you're trying to do is make it feel for these people that are coming in mm-hmm. like they're not lab rats. Exactly. Because especially, you know, here I am, this liberal East Coast person coming to your town to like, you know, have you over for dinner. You don't know who I am. And, you know, I think sometimes, especially uh, right-leaning people feel like, you know, you're they're like in a zoo and you were coming to, you know, poke and prod at them mm-hmm. or on a lab, like you said, like a lab rat. Yeah. Like, what makes you tick, you know? It, it kind of comes off to me um, when you explained it that way, because mm-hmm. I, I don't see it that way, mm-hmm. but I can see it being seen this way. And that is similar to, you know, the, the platinum blonde uh, soccer mom going to Africa to, you know, save the... Like, yes. I'm, I'm going to go there and I'm going to take all these selfies and I'm going to give the impression that I'm helping out. And then when uh, she or he is done, they come back you know, yeah. to their house in America and, you know, are back in the lap of luxury. I am very, very aware of that. Like, I don't, in fact, going back to your other question about gentrification, I mean, it's a real issue in terms of, so that work was part of uh, some work I do around creative placemaking and using art as a way to help build communities and in terms of urban planning and that sort of thing. But it's a real central issue of like, you know, helicoptering into your neighborhood and creating this art installation and then leaving. And then people are left with this art thing that they don't, you know, like, Mm -hmm. what are you supposed to do with that? Anyway, you have put your, you've nailed it. Like that is a real problem. And so how do we create spaces that can continue on beyond I, it can't be centered around me organizing the dinner. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you, you've definitely hit it. Looking at where you started from to now, is, has your perspective changed or has it become more solid? Oh, I mean, more solid than ever. Absolutely. I, I'm, again, I'm struggling with the languaging too. Um, I, you know, it's called... We call it civil discourse. I'm doing air quotes because, again, I I started in that space of thinking, we've got to have more civil discourse. We've got to be more civil to each mm-hmm. other. Actually, what I all I think now is we just have to have conversations. That's mm-hmm. all. In fact, I was thinking about it as, you know, like when you're a little kid and your mom was like, look people in the eye, uh, don't interrupt, you know, like we kind of learn these things about how to talk to each other and mm-hmm. and somehow we forgot all those things you yeah. know i don't know i let's just talk to each other and without any agenda i feel like when you call it civil discourse it se- it feels like an agenda like you have some kind of agenda and i'm like mm-hmm. i don't have an agenda i just want to talk to you that's it you know one thing that you just said that i thought was interesting or that i think is interesting is the eye contact thing, right? Like mm-hmm. you always hear like, oh, my, you know, my mom or my dad always told me to look at somebody in the eyes when I'm talking to them. And you said that maybe that's a little lost nowadays. That seems like something both sides of the aisle can agree on, right? Like even the the concept of, you know, make America great again. You know, I guess his his idea is to get back to something that used to exist. Ooh, that's an interesting idea. I want to think about that a little bit more. I mean, getting back to this idea of like, we just want to get back to a place where we can do that. Um, we all do. Want, well, that's, I, I mean, exactly. Mm-hmm. We all want the same things. We want to have like a safe neighborhood to live in. We want to be able to provide for our families. Mm-hmm. We all want the same things. Uh, we just have different ways of getting at it. And it's okay that we have different ways of getting at it. We just shouldn't be shouting at each other while we're trying to figure out like Mm -hmm. those differences because i don't think i don't think we should all be the same like it's healthy for our democracy to have differences of opinion it's just how we like negotiate those differences that we're we're, we've become really bad at you know something that just hit me as well is i'm i'm big into movies and Mm -hmm. kind of pop culture and right now we are seeing 
nostalgia culture, right? So we have all of these remakes. We're seeing all of these, um, you know, full house got brought back. You know, you're, yeah, it's, it's so weird. It's, it's insane. <laughs> but I think that that also can be seen in politics, right? Like, like I mentioned, you know, the make America great again, or even, you know, the, the nostalgia, uh, what you said about looking people in the eyes and how maybe that's a little lost, right? It seems like it's all connected. It, it's, I mean, it's absolutely all connected. And in fact, I think that, you know, we're, it's, again, people are lazy. <laughs> and so we all want, a, you know, an explanation, mm-hmm. one explanation that like makes everything make sense. And that's one of the things that I find one of the most important things about having these conversations is it's so nuanced. Like there's so many different things that a person can be all at once that seem contradictory. Mm-hmm. They only seem contradictory because we've decided that we have a binary system of thinking now. When in fact you can be, uh, like you can be pro-life and um, pro-immigration at the same time, and mm-hmm. that seems contradictory in our political thinking, but it can make sense. So if we don't ask questions to find out why that makes sense, mm-hmm. we'll just we'll dismiss that. And that's I just find that lazy. And by the way, I was just reading this piece about how um, there was some chatter about remaking The Princess Bride. And the Princess Bride cast was like, this is the most perfect movie of all time. And don't even try to remake this movie. <laughs> I was like, yeah, if they ever try to remake that movie, I will be so upset. Like, I saw that too. Yeah, yeah. Like I will not go see that movie. <laughs> it will fail. <laughs> you know, one thing that you said uh, earlier, and it has to do with the Looking for America tour, mm-hmm. is that fundamental question of what does it mean to be American? Mm-hmm. Have you come to an answer? Of course not. Um, And I say that because, again, one, it's just very complex and nuanced. And two, I mean, we are still in the middle of the tour right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I suspect that even when we're done, there is, I I don't want to give people an answer. And in fact, okay, I'm really not trying to dodge the question at all. No, I don't think you are. I think what it is is that I want people to have their own conversations around this question. Like, I don't, I'm not going to tell you because if I tell you what I think, that's just only what I think. It's not the answer Mm -hmm. to what it means to be American. I'm always afraid that people just want this answer and then they'll think, oh, okay, I don't have to do it myself. Yeah. So I'm, I want people to have these conversations themselves and don't rely on me or anybody else, you know, the media, whatever, for answers. What about you personally? Do you have a definition of what America is? I only have not what America is. I, I, I'm still thinking about that, too. I, after every dinner, I, I, write the, I write a blog. And after every dinner, I'm like, I'm going to write the answer to that qu- that same question. I've asked other people to answer it, mm-hmm. and I still haven't answered it in, f- in full yet. And I can't – I haven't been able to yet. Um, but I think that just goes to the fact that being American is so complicated. Um, and, like, again, I have my very personal experience of what that means. Um, I, like, I grew up as a half-Asian, half-white kid in a – southern suburb where everybody was either black or white and my brother and I were the only like Asian looking kids in the whole school and so we didn't it's like we I literally didn't fit in anywhere and I even though I've felt I I I think that I am American my whole life people have made me feel at times like I didn't belong there I mean actually just like a month ago somebody asked me said to me like you know, how, where did you learn to speak English so well? And I was like, wow, like nobody said that to me in a while. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was in Washington, D.C., you know. Um, so I, I, so my American experience is so, you know, it's different from your American experience. Yeah, for sure. But yet, we're both Americans. Yeah. And so I think that's that's what I just find so fascinating is like just how different everybody's experience can be. And yet we can all call ourselves American. I wonder when, and I probably know the answer to this if I actually think about it, but 
looking at all the things that made America America when people started to think that, oh, that person over there is an American because of the color of their skin or the language that they speak, yeah. or it's just this way or just that way. Mm-hmm. That just reminds me of a quick little anecdote, too, is when my mom and I, in the beginning, were having arguments about whether we should build the wall or not. Mm-hmm. Um and about whether how many immigrants we should let into the country. She said, well, America was founded by white people. And so, you know, we're just guests here and we should just let them have their country. I was like, wow, I, that, I, I was shocked by her saying that. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, yeah, no, that's what people think. <laughs> like once I started having more conversations, I, I realized she, that's not unusual. That is part of our American story is white people founded this country and it's a white country. That's pretty profound. I to hear that from your mother, who's mm-hmm. an immigrant, and she says, I'm a guest here. How long has she lived here? Since 1968. Yeah. She's she's more American than I am. I'm 31. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. But okay, that brings up another little nuance too, is so. She was a politically conservative person in her own country. She doesn't become a liberal person just because she moves here. She's still a conservative person. And so I think that's another interesting thing, especially for liberals, got to remember this, is like just because you're a person of color doesn't automatically make you liberally. Like, you, like, again, mm-hmm. we're humans. Like, I, like the color of our skin doesn't determine our politics. Anyway, so she came from a politically conservative place and actually very nationalistic. Like she, uh, I think I told her she's Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very nationalistic. She did not want to leave Vietnam. She was forced to leave Vietnam for fear of death. So, you know, it's again, just like so many complicated things that I just had never thought of mm-hmm. until I started asking questions. Like, just because you move doesn't mean that you are going to leave everything you've ever known behind. Yeah. Especially when you didn't actually want to leave. Yeah. (laughs) So, near the end of your TED Talk, you said something that I really liked. You said that maybe it is possible to heal the political divide in this country one conversation at a time. Yeah. I just, that's what I, that's that's what I'm keep, just, uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time saying this only because I feel kind of dumb when I say this, but like, that's all it's about. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I feel like people want to make this loftier and more complicated and they and they want to have like a, you know, a, a, a guidebook to tell them what to do. You already know what to do. Just do one thing and then do the next thing. You don't, it's, I really, I just believe it's that simple. Do you ever, and it's hard. And it's hard. I get it. Do you ever wish that you could take like an SD card with all of your thoughts and all of your experiences and just like input it into somebody yeah. else's head so I you could know. be like, all right, that's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, I've just spent the last hour, I feel like shouting at you <laughs> <laughs> um, because I just feel so passionately about this and I want to just like. I could talk about this all day, and then I realize I, I, I don't. You know, that's not the solution. Um, I, but yes, how do we? How do I convey this message? Because to, you're excited, or that you're mad at me? <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm not mad at you at all. I'm so excited and passionate. You know what it is? I'm very frustrated because I I am so thankful that we can talk about this, and some people are going to listen. Hopefully. And maybe they'll talk to somebody. You know, maybe it'll set off some chain reaction. Um, I I want to find the way to basically. You know what? I'm going to say it right here. Mm-hmm. This is mine. I want to start a movement, a revolution of just people talking to each other who are different from one another. That's that's all I want. Is let's let's start talking to people who are not the ones we're always talking to. Like, let's actually learn and grow and be curious about others. Um, Because I just, obviously, we're not getting anywhere by doing the same thing over and over. So what would you say to somebody who's listening to this right now 
in order for them to go out and do that? Like, what what is a situation where they could be like, you know, kind of seek out this other person with a different perspective? Well, so I, I'm also like really not into small talk anymore. <laughs> um, I've, I, I, because I feel like if you can start asking people questions that get at who, who they are and not just what you did over the weekend or, I mean, okay. The weather? I, yeah, the weather. <laughs> like, uh, um, no, like ask a question that is more, a, oh, and ask a, like maybe your coworker or ask somebody that you always, you, you always have like the same kind of conversations and you know them very superficially. How about asking them, what, what do you think it means to be American? That would be amazing. Okay, I'm just making this up on the fly right now, but... I like it. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Like, maybe from now on, instead of like when you meet somebody new in a bar, instead of saying, I don't, you know, the normal bar chatter, which I think is fine. I love bars. <laughs> a little too much. Um, ask them, what do you think it means to be American? I think that'd be kind of interesting. I'm going to start doing that myself, actually. Is that how you're going to introduce yourself? Yeah. Like, if we if we were to role play right now, you're meeting me for the first time. Yeah. What do you say? Yeah, okay. Let's say we're, we're, we sit down at a bar. I'm like, hey, Cody, you know, I'm not from around here. And I'm wondering, like, you know, what do you think it means to be American here? Here, specifically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I'm, I'm, that's a kind of a little bit of what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, now we got to back up because we got to give people a, a way to into this conversation with people that are already here. I was thinking about in, pers- in the perspective of I'm traveling around. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's say we live in the same town. I think we still thought, I think they should just ask that question. It's awkward. I think what you're looking, I don't know. I, th- I, I think it's awkward. Like people are going to be like looking at you funny if you do that. I think awkwardness is good though. Totally. Yeah, I like That's, it. I was literally just about to say that. <laughs> like, I think we're so afraid of like awkward silences and stuttering and not saying the right thing. Like, who cares at this point? Mm-hmm. Like, no, we should lean into discomfort, lean into being awkward. How else are we going to get through this? I like that. I like the, uh, what does it mean to be American in Alaska? Or yeah. what does it mean to be American in Detroit? But I was thinking on a micro level, you could just like say it. What does it mean to be American in your neighborhood? Like mm-hmm. it could change from neighborhood to cha- neighborhood. That project I was telling you about, I did it in a neighborhood that is actually maybe seven blocks away from where I actually live in D.C. And it felt like a totally different place. Like people had different conversations or they were thinking about different things. A lot of that we were thinking about a lot of the same things, but they faced different issues in their neighborhood seven blocks away. Mm-hmm. I could walk over there. So anyway, I mean, on a micro level, it can change within a the same town, the answer to that question. So getting back to your dinners, how did it come about that you're having these dinners in different cities? Because it started in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So now you're having a dinner in Detroit, Salt Lake City, Anchorage, Alaska. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole time I was doing the dinners in D.C., I was very aware of the fact that even when um, conservative people would come to my house, we were all like still, you know, had about the same, co- you know, education level. We go all to the same coffee shops. Like we're still kind of the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like super aware of the fact that like we're not we're not that diverse really here. Anyway, um, so so what actually happened was at the last, that big dinner I mentioned at the museum where I organized the art show, um, I actually partnered up with um, the School of Public Affairs at American University. They uh, helped sponsor that dinner um, for 50 people. And because they have a program in civil discourse. Mm-hmm. And so they were interested in this idea of like, how do we have better conversations? And then so... At that dinner, I was trying to invite different policy people in case questions about immigration came up. Then we would have somebody at each table to sort of answer sort of policy issues. And so a guy came to that dinner dinner named Dan, who works at New American Economy. They do immigration policy. And he loved the dinner so much that basically we cooked up this idea between my organization, which is called Curiosity Connects Us, 
with his organization, New American Economy, and the School of Public Affairs at American University to create this program called Looking for America. So that's that's how we ended up doing this sort of nationally, going across the country with this with this idea of how do we get people to talk to each other. And it all happened from sitting down and having food. Yeah. Right? It all happened because five people came to my house three weeks after the 2016 election and just started arguing with each other. <laughs> <laughs> so we all need to argue and talk more. Yeah. So we talked about leaning into awkwardness and how important that is. You seem like a person who, who strives to understand and find meaning in things and circumstances that are personal and difficult to make sense of. In 2013, you were diagnosed with breast cancer, something you ultimately beat, but not unscathed. Do you mind talking about this? Not at all. Okay, okay. Because it really informs it. Actually, again, it's all related. Exactly. It really informs yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's something that that's why I wrote that down. Is yeah. I'm looking through all of your all of your content, all the stuff that you put out there, and me, I guess, being the type of person that I am, I'm looking at it and I'm like seeing all these connections to every single thing, you know. Um. So that same year, you wrote an article for Northern Virginia Magazine called Surviving Breast Cancer with Unabashed Realism. Yep. You end the article by talking about what it means to survive and where you go from there. What did you learn? What did you take away from that experience? I mean, so many things. Um, but the big thing, and again, why I it's all related, is because um, – so that summer – um, I had planned to move out of D.C. I'd been there a long time, and I just was, like, itching to make a change for various reasons. And so I spent the summer traveling around, and I spent several weeks in Los Angeles um, with a friend who was actually moving there. And I was like, I'd go and look at apartments with her. I was, like, testing it out. Like, could I – because I've always loved L.A. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, mate, could I live here? And then it was that summer that I had diagnosed with breast cancer – and it made me realize I couldn't move because I just was so overwhelmed at how much people like took care of me and helped me. And I do get a little emotional still. Mm -hmm. I think it's the first time I realized like – we, I, of course, we know like relationships, blah blah blah. Like we know we're supposed to like work on our relationships and whatever. Like I don't know. It's the first time it just got brought home to me. Like it's a life, it's a life or death thing to do. It's life or death whether you have good relationships or not. And I often take my relationships for granted. Um, I. I feel like, like sometimes I'm like a, kind of a collector of people. I just like, I'm always like inviting too many people to parties and whatever. And so I felt like a lot of times I feel like I have too many superficial relationships because I want to have like a lot of friends instead of having more meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I've, I never actually articulated it, it this way, but like I, it taught me that having meaningful, deep relationships is a life or death matter. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Oh, anyway, so just it's funny because it's been six years now. And like each each year I would like get like it was around this time. And so each year around this time, I always get like really in like thoughtful about that, you know, what happened. And each year it gets a little easier to remember like how how emotional that period was. But I don't want to forget, like, kind of back to our question of, like, awkwardness and discomfort. Like, I don't want to forget how awkward and uncomfortable and horrible that period was. Like, how scared I was. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to forget how important the relationships were to me. Like, I don't want to take for granted that stuff anymore. Is there a relationship that sticks out in your mind from that time that... Um, I mean, not not one. Um. I mean, like my friend Karen, who literally moved in with me for 10 days after the the first big surgery because I couldn't lift my arms above my head or mm -hmm. my shoulders, you know. And so she would like cook and she just basically moved in with me, even though she has like a pretty in intense job and, you know, whatever. But she just took care of me. Like, 
I just, I don't know, I was just so astonished at the things people did. I'll be honest, like at some level, I had to kind of stop people from doing things for me. Like, it's taking me a lot of effort to manage all the people coming over all the time. Yeah. But it just made me realize how much people want to help. And going back to social sculpting, I mean, you have, like, it was almost like I had to create opportunities for them to help me, you know? So, sculpt, like, again, sculpting space for people to, because we're all yearning. We all crave those kind of meaningful relationships. And we don't have enough opportunities to engage it with each other in those ways. We're all, so many, like our lives are so, can be so superficial. Mm-hmm. So kind of going back to the social sculptor, I want to make opportunities for people to have deeper um, conversations. I'm also like, ah, oh, I don't want, I'm, I'm very leery to of sounding too woo-woo. Like I make fun of woo-woo people all the time. And what do you mean by woo-woo? You know, like, I don't know, like the sort of magical thinking. And I I just want people to talk to each other. That's all like, yeah, you know, like I, I, I like Brene Brown. I love Brene Brown, but like, I don't want to talk and, or like, like Marianne Williamson, you know, the, you know, the presidential candidate who, yeah. you know, I was like, like talking about love and compassion. Like, yes, I believe in all those things, but it just, it doesn't matter. Like, just talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that what I'm interpreting from this is that it starts from the conversation. We can figure everything else out from there. Yeah. As long as we sit down and um, there's this term, the Washington talk, right? I read it in uh, the James Comey book where he he brings it up. And the concept is that you're only quiet and listening to someone so that they can finish and then you can talk. So you're not actually listening to them. You are – you're waiting to talk. Oh, my gosh. That's actually one of the things that um, when I do the dinners, I I try not to make it sound too much like a rule. But I just remind people that – when you're listening, don't think about what you're going to say next. Don't think about how you're going to respond or how you're going to convince them that your, you know, your point is the correct one. I, I, I've never heard that. I actually haven't heard that term, Washington talk. But mm-hmm. yeah, but that it's not Washington. That's human. We, we're always like thinking about our oh, response. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We're, we're very um, selfish. Yeah. I feel like I'm uh, having a little therapy session here right now. <laughs> <laughs> But I think the reason what I was trying to get at with the woo-woo com- comment, I think what I was trying to say is I'm also very aware of sounding too liberally. <laughs> and I don't want to sound too liberally. I just want to sound like a human being. Mm-hmm. And because I, I think, you know, when you start using certain terms, it makes you sound a certain way. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Yeah, and so... I mean, for both sides. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I'm trying to engage people who are different from me in conversation, I'm just... I I don't want to become to, to overly aware of myself, mm-hmm. but I know that, you know, the way we use language matters. And so people hear things in a certain way and and they'll get turned off. They, they might not want to have a conversation with me if I sound too much a certain way. There's this, um, I don't even know what his title is, but uh, his name is George Lakoff. Oh, yeah. uh, Yeah. (laughs) And and he talks about this. He talks about the importance of the the words and the language you use in order to convey an idea accurately. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm a big fan. Um, And it's like the way we dress, the language, like it it indicates our tribe. Mm -hmm. And so we... It's a way of getting out of outside of your tribal thinking is to change the way you talk. And it's even though uh, like even the way you dress, like even though it seems superficial, these are signals to the world of what tribe you're in. And so I would just I think that's why I'm I'm leery of rules and workshops. And it's like you just think don't oh, think outside the box, you know, like the world doesn't have to be the way you're told it. Mm-hmm. is you can let's let's approach it differently let's find a way to approach things differently and talk about things differently you know that reminded me of um when i was in college as a freshman you go in and if you are unfamiliar with the college process and picking out a degree you only really think there's like four degrees right you can you can major in math science 
writing, you know, and, and then once you you get to a certain point or you graduate and then you actually experience the world, you realize like, oh, like I could be a lawyer with that. You know, I could go into law school or I could, you know, you see that there's not just four degrees, there's a million, but that's the, that's the perception you get because that's kind of how you've always understood it. Um, did you know that I used to be a lawyer? I did not know. Yeah. No. I mean, to your point is I, I, well, you know, I have an Asian mother. So I was given three options. I could be a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. <laughs> and so I did one of those things. And then eventually when I started having, you know, having more free thinking, <laughs> I realized I don't have to be one, like, like you said, like there are other options and mm -hmm. other way, and there are other ways I can use. I, I don't regret having that education. Like now I'm like doing this other thing, you know, it, you can, you can make it up yourself. Mm -hmm. So I don't yeah, to your point. I, I agree. Like you can make up your, you should be able to make up your own major and not just be restricted to what they tell you. Do you still use some of the skills and things you've learned as a lawyer in what you're doing now? Yeah. Okay. okay yes. Um, because one of the things that you learn in law school, and I mean, really what you're doing as a lawyer, you, you sure, like you start practicing a certain area of law, so you understand that law. But the real thing that they teach you is how to ask better questions how to how to understand what the actual issues are. Um, you know, like when you're in an argument with somebody and they're like getting, I can't think of a good example, but they're, you know, you're arguing about a thing and then you realize, oh, wait, they're actually mad about this other thing mm -hmm. and it's coming out in this way. I say that all the time where, yeah. where I come to the conclusion in an argument or a conversation, I'm like, we're having two different conversations. Yeah, what are you actually mad about right now? Mm -hmm. But you're not gonna find out unless you ask more questions. So. So one of the basic things you learn in law school is issue spotting. Like that's a fundamental thing. What's the real issue here? Um, so in that way, I definitely use my legal skills. When I think that by asking more questions, you're prompting critical thinking. Yes, ex exa yes, exactly. Critical thinking, um, a healthy, healthy skepticism at mm -hmm. all times. But that's hard for me because I'm a naturally sort of optimistic, you know, positive person. And so I think everything's great, you know. So <laughs> I actually have to like force myself to be skeptical. <laughs> Tone it down and yeah, yeah. realize that things kind of suck sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I get that. about. I, I, I'm sure I annoy people because I'm just like, that's so great. <laughs> <laughs> about everything. About everything. <laughs> so what do you think it does to a person when they encounter and overcome the thing that goes against everything they are or the thing that they're most afraid of. Whoa. Wait, okay. I'm sorry. Can you say that again? <laughs> so I guess to uh, preface where this question comes from is the things that you've dove into, you know, the things that you've written about, the things that you've talked about on your TED Talk. And so this was kind of like, as I was thinking about everything all together, this is, you know, this is a question that kind of just popped into my head is what do you think it does to a person when they encounter or overcome the thing that goes against everything they are or the thing that they're most afraid of? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's okay. We could spend another hour just <laughs> talking about that question because I've this question. I don't know. This question is amazing to me. I really want to like have a whole other podcast about this. We could do a whole podcast about that question <laughs> because it's very scary to be faced with your world being cracked open and seeing that it's not what you thought it was or that it's changing. I mean, you know, that is one of the things in our political discourse is the world is changing and people are scared and like nothing is the same as what they thought or the, what they got comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's a whole other thing. Um, but for me, I think I have a pretty high, to I've developed a pretty high tolerance for fear or doing a fearful things. And I have to remind myself that like, I, I've been leaning into discomfort and awkwardness and going to strange places and, and doing strange things. 
And I have to remind myself how scary it is to step outside of everything you understand about the world and and making that first step. Like I've spent the last hour telling, you know, like proselytizing this idea of like, just do, just talk to one stranger. Mm-hmm. It's hard and it's scary. But there's that, oh, oh, what is that quotation about? Like being brave isn't about not having fear. It's about seeing fear and then just going forward anyway, because you know that like, that's where the good stuff is on the mm-hmm. other side of that once you get there. So I think that that's what I've been thinking a lot about is helping people to be become more brave and not not saying that they shouldn't be afraid. Like you should definitely be afraid. And, you should, <laughs> like, and this is definitely not going to be like the funnest thing you ever, I think it's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, and in fact, once you get through it, you're going to look back and think it's fun too. But I get why, like, why it's hard to take that first step. Um, but that's an aside. I think being brave is is like the thing that I have learned out of all of this. Being brave while while being scared at the same time. That's great. I think that that does it for my questions. If you have anything else you'd like to add, I feel like we. We really like got in there. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for being so open. Yeah. No, thank you for letting me be open. Thank you for this social space that you've sculpted. Yeah. We, we created this together. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. <laughs>